Thank you for listening to the Keystone Church Podcast. For more information about us, you can visit us at mykeystonechurch.com. So as I talk today, if there's anything that comes out, if there's anything that, that you latch on to, let it be that you're loved. When we talk about God being good, this is the first truth about God that was attacked in the garden. In, in Adam and Eve's story, the devil came to them and the lie was, God is not as good as you think. He's holding out on you. And as that lie entered their minds, all of a sudden they had this thought, if, if he's holding out on us, he must not love us. And then the thought echoed not just on the identity of God, but echo- echoed back onto their own identity. And the, the resulting identity, the resulting lie there, the question there is, they started to think we're not good enough. I'm not good enough as I am. I need to better myself. I need to cover up my shame. And so they thought the apple would make them better. So they thought they needed to grow and improve and be changed and be better. They also thought that God was holding out on them, that he was, he was holding back something from them that they wanted or needed. It turned it, the devil's lies there, that turned it from a relationship between them and God where they could have open discussion and, and presence and, and, and connection and it turned it into a zero-sum game. It turned it into an opposition. How many of you guys know what a zero-sum game is? Is that familiar to you? So, like, you know, when you're playing baseball, that's not a zero-sum game. You know, every team has a chance to get points. When you're playing poker, poker is a zero-sum game. The only time there is an actual winner is when everybody else has lost all of their chips. In other words, as long as the other person has one point, that is one point I don't have. And so for me to win, I have to take that point from them. Does that make sense? And so when you have a zero-sum game, if somebody else is winning, I'm losing. And that was the perspective that the enemy's lies put into Adam and Eve. All of a sudden, they had this perspective that God is winning and I'm losing. So I've got to do something about it. And that lie disrupted the intimacy, the innocence of man's first relationship with God. From that moment on, the stronghold of our mind became one of the biggest battlefields of our spiritual freedom. What we see and how we see it, how we perceive and what we're looking at, what our mind believes and acts on becomes one of the biggest battlegrounds of our spiritual freedom. So I think I want to break down some of these lies and how the enemy has presented them And I want to present the opposite, the reality, the truth behind them. I think one of the barriers, now that sin has entered into the world and we have a broken world, one of the barriers to us believing that God is good, to us believing that he's not holding out on us, is the idea of pain, the idea of suffering. And we look at the world and we see all the things that we've had to experience and that people around us experience and people we've never heard of, the horrors that they're experiencing around the world. And we think, if there's pain in this world, how can God actually be good? And I know I've talked about this idea before, but there's a difference between the concept of God being in control and God being in charge. I'm in charge of my home. But if I had a little switch that I could flip or some magical thing I could do to make my kids obey every single thing I said all the time, I would be tempted. (laughs) However... 
that would completely remove love from the equation. My children would become slaves, automatons, no better than a robot, no better than a computer that I can tell to do whatever I want it to do. I like my kids' freedom. I like the fact that they have a choice. I don't like when they choose to hurt themselves. I showed you guys a picture a couple of weeks ago of my son climbing to the top of a three-story tree, standing on branches thinner than my pinky, and the danger that he was in and the terror that was in my heart for him. And yet, if he is not free to make those kinds of choices, to experience those kinds of things, then he's not free to love, he's not free to grow, he's not free to develop into the fullness of what he was designed to be. There's a risk in this world of free will that God has kind of placed in us, where as a good father, he would rather we have the risk of pain and the choice of love than to manipulate and control all of his creation. He is in charge of what happens in this world, but he's not controlling every single tiny aspect of it. He's not holding out on us. Second Peter 3.9 says, He's not willing that any should perish. So we know that God's desire, His will, right? We ask, what's the will of God? We pray for the will of God. Well, it says, the will of God, He is not willing for any to perish. And yet we know that on this earth, some are perishing. So there's a problem on earth that there's pain, and yet we can't put that all at the foot of God. Because he has an answer. The question about pain has an answer. And the answer is Jesus. But God also turned the answer on its head. When Jesus came, he reinforced the mandate that God gave Adam and Eve in Genesis. See, in, in Genesis, God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Take dominion over the earth. Subdue it, right? God actually told them, here's a planet. I'm giving it to you to control. I'm giving it to you to take charge of. This is your responsibility. Now, they, they gave that away, right? They gave that away to the enemy. And then Jesus came, and he restored that mandate to us. He restored our connection with God. He restored everything inside of us, and he gave us that same mandate. And he said, go and make disciples of all nations. He says, this earth is your mandate. So the pain that's in the world, yes, Jesus is the answer to that pain. But through us, does that make sense? He has chosen not to unilaterally come into this world and just make it his own. He's chosen to call his people to go out and to call heaven to earth and to be that answer. He said, you are the light of the world. Think about that. Jesus, obviously, he's the light of the world, right? How is it that the king of heaven comes down and he enters into our pain. He enters into the, 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 everything that we experience. Can you imagine God experiencing hunger pangs? Can you imagine God falling and scraping his knee as a little boy? Can you imagine God having to pause in the middle of a message to go to the bathroom? <laughs> I don't know if it happened, but it could have. He experienced what we experienced. He's the light of the world. He's the creator of the universe, the ruler of all. And he comes and he says, no, you're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. That statement is mind-blowing. And I don't think that we actually spend enough time considering what does that actually mean? Because we don't actually believe it. We actually tend to say, well, that's a nice phrase, a nice statement, but I'm going to live as though that's not really true because that's just too crazy to be true. God's the light of the world, so I'm just going to pray for his light. I'm going to pray that he'll come and he'll do his thing because I can't actually believe 
that I would be the light of the world. And even when I pray, I want to pray in full belief that he's the light of the world and he's going to come and do something. But in the back of my mind, there's this lingering doubt, is he really good? If he was really good, would, this, would I have to pray for this at all in the first place? And those lies just very subtly, very minor, just in, in, in slow little ways creep into our hearts. I think sometimes our prayers aren't answered because we're supposed to be the answer. I think sometimes the prayers that we pray, we're asking God to move and he's saying, I've put the answer in you, you move, you move. And if you look at what Jesus did, his constant thing, he would set the example and then he'd say to his disciples, now you go do it. He wasn't trying to say, I'm going to make you dependent on me and me only. He was saying, I want a partner. Like, yes, we're supposed to depend on God and God only. I'm not, I'm not trying to d deny that. But it's not just depending on him for me and I only get just enough for me and they're bare scraps from his table and maybe I can just make it if I get enough from you God no he flows into us with a super abundance and then he says now you go flow into the world you're the light of the world so we've got the lie that if God is good why is there pain but the reality is that he's called us to be an answer to that pain he's called us to partner with him in bringing resolution to the issues on the earth. One of, uh, a story that, that really impacts us in regards to this, because the reality is, even when we're called, and even when we do everything we do, have you ever been in a situation where you've, you've tried, like you've tried to believe, I'm the light of the world, I can make a difference here, and it's fallen flat on its face? Has anybody experienced that? That, and again, the devil will just harp on that and he'll point his finger on that and say, see, you tried, you failed, you can't do it. Why don't you just pray some more? Why don't you sit down in your chair, cry, pray, you know, maybe God will do something. And God's saying, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. It's like my kids, sometimes they try something and they can't do it and they make a mistake and they fail. And I could say, yeah, I can do it for you, but I don't want to do it for you because I know you can do this. You can do this. And I encourage them and I hold them and I hug them and I give them peace. And then I push them back out and say, let's try again. When my wife and I did the world race, we went to Malaysia. And in Malaysia, we met this family called the Dukes. And, and uh, we first met the husband and his name was Martin Duke. And he took us to eat some of the most mind-blowing, amazing food I've ever had in my life. The man, like, he was not a thin man. He loved food, and he knew where to find the best places. And so, literally, I think he took us to three or four of the top restaurants in Kuala Lumpur just because he's like, and it wasn't like the fancy ones. It's like, no, here's, here's like a whole neighborhood of street vendors, and this is the one we got to go to because it's going to blow your mind. And he was just an amazing introduction to that culture. And we stayed with him for a little bit, and then we went to this place, um, another city called Port Klang. And so we were going to this boy's home, and we had a team of six people. And at this boy's home, first we were trying to kind of discover what was the point of it. And, and we started to realize that, that the, this was a home for troubled boys. It wasn't a home for boys that didn't have a home. It was like, these are the bad kids. But the longer we were there, we started noticing, like, 
these kids really aren't all that bad. One of our first nights there, we went to this, this, you know, meeting and all of a sudden we were looking around and all the kids line up in a row and they're standing straight and they start reciting this stuff and, and, and praying. And it was very militaristic. And we could look at the, the leader of this home and he was looking at us with pride, like, look at what I've done. But I could feel terror on the boys. I could feel fear all over them. And we knew there was a threat if you don't perform while these Americans are here. And we started to hear stories. Like I started talking to one of the kids and he was playing guitar and he had this beautiful voice and he played so well. And I just started asking him like, what's your life like? Like, why are you here? And he said, well, I'm here because, you know, I played secular songs in my home. I played secular songs and so my parents sent me here. And I was like, wow, okay. And we started learning about situations of abuse and different things. And the leader of that home started to tell us, you know, what I do to, to keep these kids in line. Like when they come from school and they're walking home, I'll follow them in my car and I'm, I'm watching them to see who they talk to and what they do. And he said, I'll leave out money and I'll see if they'll take it. Like I leave out $20 and I'll just see like what's going to happen. Are they going to steal it? And, I, and we hear stories of abuse and all these different things happening and he's proud of it. And we hit this point where our hearts are broken and we're like, this is, this is wrong. Like, this is really, really wrong. And so I, I had to confront him. Like, we had no choice. It was like, I knew we were outsiders and I am all about honoring the house that we're in. But what was happening was demonic. It was awful. And so I confronted him. And first I just asked clarifying questions. I was like, I heard this. Can you tell me more about it? I was just trying to give him a chance to explain but every single time I gave him a chance, he confirmed every story, and he was proud of it. It was, it was, he, he felt it was right. And so I looked at him, and I challenged him, and I said, you need to understand, our God is not a tempter. Our God is not a tempter. Our God is not the accuser. Like, you are looking for things to find in these boys and you're, you're trying to give them opportunities to sin and tempt them. That's what the enemy does. And I said, and when, when horrible things have happened in this home, you've not protected the weak and the innocent. And I said, that needs to stop. This is not okay. And I knew I had no control over it, but I knew we had to say something. And so we said what we could say and there was fury on his face. He had no willingness to change. And I tried. I just, I was trying to do it in as much love as I could. But we wound up packing our bags an hour later and doing kind of a walk of shame. <laughs> and we're doing this walk of shame, the six of us, and we're in tears. We're brokenhearted for these kids. And we're dragging our bags. And we have like a couple miles to go through weird parts of the city to try to get to the train station. And so I called up Martin. <laughs> And I just let him know, we're coming back. I don't know what we're supposed to do. And I told him this story. And on the phone, he goes, oh, I'm so sorry. And he goes, come home. He says, come home. This man who had only known us for a week instantly adopted us as a father. And he said, come home. We did what we were supposed to do. We were the light that we were supposed to be. And it failed. We had no control over where that, that home was going to go. It was a weird, very prophetic moment where we came, and I believe God put us there for that very reason, to give them an opportunity to repent, to give them an opportunity to do the right thing. 
when it doesn't work. We don't have a God that's sitting there saying, well, I guess you don't have it in you. Maybe I'll give it to someone else. We have a God that says, come home. You did good. I'm proud of you. Now come rest. Let me refresh you. Let me restore you. God has equipped us for the mandate that he's given us. Adam and Eve had a mandate to subdue the earth. And for whatever reason, they thought they needed the fruit. They thought they wouldn't be able to fulfill this mandate. They wouldn't be all of what they should be unless they had that fruit. But our identity has been purchased by Jesus, and it's ours. You don't earn your new nature. You don't earn your new nature. You believe in it. You inherit it. It's given to you. Second Peter 1.3, in the, in the Passion Translation, it says, Everything we could ever need for life and godliness has already been deposited in us by his divine power. For all this was lavished upon us through the rich experience of knowing him who has called us by name and invited us to come to him through a glorious manifestation of his goodness. Everything we could need, it's been deposited in us. When he says you're the light of the world, it's because he means it, and it's because he's given us everything we need to accomplish that mandate. But we have to renew our minds. We have to live like we're loved. We have to live like we're loved. God didn't leave us out here as orphans. Francis Frangipane is a great author. Um, he wrote this book about the three battlegrounds. Um, and, and he says this quote in it. He says, any area of my life that is not filled with glistening hope is where I am believing a lie and is a stronghold of the devil. Any area of my life that is not filled with glistening hope is where I am believing a lie and is a stronghold of the devil. Glistening hope. I, I love that phrase. It's not a phrase you hear very often, but, but it's, it's, when I think of glistening hope, it's fresh. It's not old hope that's been sitting dusty in the corner for a long time. Glistening hope is fresh. It's vibrant. It's alive. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind. God, see, the thing is, God has already put all of it inside of us. But until you begin to act and believe that that's the case, we're stuck. Humans, we're, we're not designed to live out of, we're not designed to live and make our actions all just based on hope. Hope is good. Hope is powerful. We've talked about that in the past. But we live, our actions are based out of our beliefs, right? Our convictions, what I'm convicted is true, what I'm convinced is true, is what I will ultimately act on. And so we need to renew our minds and become convinced that he has deposited that new nature in us, that he has placed everything in us that we need for life and godliness. In our pursuit of him is not, not this desperation that somehow someday I'll become worthy of the name Christian. But our pursuit and desperation for him is I just want more of your presence. You've made me great. But I want to experience more of you. It's not about making me better. The, it's, the lie of the enemy is, 
you need to change and grow and improve. It doesn't mean that there's not weaknesses and, and things in us we need to work through. But so many of those would just fall away if we would just lock eyes with him and believe we are who he says we are. You got to ask yourself the question, do you keep renewing your mind with your past experience or are you renewing your mind with what he says? Are you renewing your mind with your past experience or are you renewing your mind with what he says? Past experience will tell you a different story than the story that Jesus is speaking over you. Sometimes we struggle with that and we can't quite switch the mental tracks and we get stuck. And, and sometimes you just have to take a step and live like it's true before you even believe that it's true. Sometimes you just have to act on it and live as if it's reality before you come to that place where you actually believe it. Um, Gary Black, he says, you need to sometimes live yourself into a new way of thinking. Because the thing is, when we try to think ourselves into a new way of living, sometimes that's good, sometimes that's what we need. But I'll tell you, for me, more often than not, I get stuck in the mental loop. And I keep trying to think myself into it and think myself into it. And God is just saying, just take a step, just take a step, just walk, walk into it, and I will make it real. Francis Frangipane, he also said, victory begins with the name of Jesus on our lips. It begins with the name of Jesus on our lips, but it will not be consummated until the nature of Jesus is in our hearts. One more verse here, Romans 15.3. Now, we, we uh, listened to a guy on Wednesday night who said, uh, Paul is the king of run-on sentences. So anytime you read from Paul, you kind of have to break apart. What is he actually saying? What does the sentence mean? And so in Romans 15, 13, he says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Everybody say, in believing. I know I don't do that a lot. I'm going to make you repeat after me. <laughs> One more time. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's two pieces to this sentence, and they both hang on that phrase in believing. The first piece is, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In believing, he fills us with all joy and peace. And in believing, that we may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit in believing. And he fills us with all joy and peace in believing. <laughs> Like I said, we weren't made, we weren't designed to act on guesses. We're designed to live out of our convictions, what we believe, and we've got to renew our minds. The lie that we're not good enough, the lie that we can't face what's in front of us without supplements is a big one. You know, vitamin supplements are meant to provide nutrition that we're missing in our diet. So the question I ask is, is what are we using to supplement what God has given us? What are we using to supplement what God has given us? Because what happens is, it's not always bad things. But when we live with crutches, when we live with something that's like, I just need this to get through my day or through my week, those things can reinforce the lie that God is holding out on us. Those things can reinforce the lie that we don't have what we need or we don't have what it takes. It's not always that those are bad things. A lot of times those are things that aren't in and of themselves wrong. But when we use things as a supplement, because we don't feel like we can do it without God, 
or, or we don't feel like we can do it with what we have, it becomes a replacement for the reality of God. It becomes a replacement for the truth that he wants our minds to get renewed into. In 2 Peter 1, 8 through 10, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Peter goes through this long list of virtues, and he's like, add to your faith this, and this, this, and, the, and he goes through this long list. And he says, since these virtues are already planted deep within, and you possess them in abundant supply, they will keep you from being inactive or fruitless in your pursuit of knowing Jesus Christ. <laughs> you possess them in abundant supply. I don't always feel like I possess them in abundant supply. I don't. And I frequently have to go to that place where I'm closing my eyes and I'm, in, I'm engaging with the Holy Spirit and just asking him, help me to believe what's, what you say is true about me. Help me to take what you've given me and pull it out and use it for this situation. Help me not to rely on the crutches and the things that I want to run to right now because there are so many that I want to run to right now. Help me to take what you've given me and pull that out and let that be what I'm going to hold on to to get through this situation. It also says in, first, in Second Peter there, it says, but if anyone lacks these things, he is blind. If you lack these things, you're blind. That means you can't see because you don't actually lack them. That's what he's really saying. If anyone lacks these things, he's blind, constantly closing his eyes to the mysteries of our faith and forgetting his innocence. Do you ever forget your innocence? It's so easy to forget our innocence because we think we earned it. Because we think, I've been good for a month now, so I've earned my innocence. And Jesus is saying, it's yours now, forever, always. It's mine, and I give it to you. Guys, you are so loved. You're so loved. It cannot be undone. It's too late. It's undoable. Un-undoable. <laughs> the love of God... It undoes your history. It undoes your mistakes. It undoes your brokenness. And it remakes you. And it has returned to you everything that was stolen. Everything that was stolen was recaptured by Jesus on the cross. When you're feeling beaten down and when you're feeling like you've lost, your Father is calling out to you, come home. Come home. Get rest. Be refreshed, be renewed, be restored. Be reminded that you're not who the enemy said you were in that situation. You're who I say you are. So I want to pray for you guys real quick. And if anybody has a, a word or anything to share, you know, I'd love to hear it. But Daddy, right now, we just release your freedom into this place. Father, we choose to renew our minds in your word. We choose to renew our minds in your truth. Father, we just ask your forgiveness for any time we have not believed you. Daddy, we, for, we just ask, forgive us, Father, for believing our past experiences and repeating those in our mind instead of repeating your truth over us. Jesus, I ask right now for an impartation of belief right now in who you have said we are 
And Father, for those that are struggling with the lies of the past, those are struggling with the, with the enemy is trying to put in front of their eyes, God, I ask that you would make us blind to his lies and our eyes would be open to your reality, that our eyes would be open to what you say about us. God, I ask for those that need a rest right now, that those that need a refreshing and a reminder of who they are, that you would spiritually provide that for them, God. God, they would take time to enter into your presence and just receive the renewal that you want to place in them. God, we thank you that we are so loved. We thank you that we are so loved. God, forgive us for trying to earn it. (laughs) And God, we open our hands and we choose to receive it. God, we believe that you are good. And we believe that if you've called us to be the light of the world, that we can actually be the light of the world. Help us to just take steps into that, Jesus. Amen.